Word. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have shown mercy to us. Though we are undeserving, though we are ill-deserving of Your mercy and Your grace, it is precisely at the point where we need it that You are there with it and that You apply it to our hearts and make us new, qualify us for salvation. Not by anything that we have done, but simply on the basis of Your grace. And Father, we pray this morning that You would help us to understand this text and to be obedient to it and to understand You better and worship You more completely for having been here and opened Your Word and worshiped with Your people. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, a couple things I want to draw your attention to before we get into the Scriptures, actually. The first one is uh, on October the 15th, we uh, already have uh, one person lined up for this, but if you would like to join him, uh, we are going to uh, have a baptism service at the end of the worship service on October the 15th. And if you would like to be baptized, if you haven't been, uh, every believer should be baptized. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have not been, uh, we would like to help you take that step of obedience and, and uh, imitate Jesus Christ himself and follow his command to uh, be baptized. So if you haven't been, uh, we'd like you to uh, take that step at, at this point. And um, if you want to talk to me about that, uh, see me after the service. Uh, the other thing is, is that you may have noticed the last two weeks we've had somebody else read the Scripture instead of me, and that is fine. That is, in fact, a great thing. It allows uh, uh, more people to participate in worship and, to, uh, and in the reading of God's Word. And so if you would like to do that at some point in the future, please see me. Uh, we we will uh, have somebody different doing that each week. So if you'd like to be one of those people, see me and we'll put you on that list to read uh, God's Word for His people. So uh, Romans chapter 11. Uh, you may remember at the end of the Gospel of Luke, uh, one of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that's absolutely fascinating is uh, there's these two guys walking on the road to Emmaus. And as they're walking, they're talking. And just then, this guy shows up and starts talking with them. And they're like, he's like, hey, what are you talking about? And they said, well, we were talking about the things that happened in Jerusalem the last couple of days. The guy says, what things? And they said, well, about Jesus of Nazareth. You know, uh, you know, he was accredited as a prophet by many signs and wonders that he did, but we were hoping that he was going to be the Messiah. And it says, and then this man that they've just met starts opening to them the Old Testament. And he starts talking to them about how every aspect of the Old Testament points to the Messiah and identifies Jesus as the Messiah. And as they're walking, they don't know who they're talking to. But it says that their hearts burned within them. And um, 
he talks to him, I'm assuming, about in Genesis, how God promised a deliverer that was to come. And then how in Exodus that, that, that uh, the Messiah will be like Moses and that he will deliver people out of slavery to sin. And he will bring them to a promised land. And that uh, he will be the suffering servant that Isaiah talked about. And that he will be a king like David, an eternal king that will reign forever, just like God promised David in 2 Samuel 7. And that uh, he would be an exalted king like the, one, like the one that the Psalms give praise to. And that he would be the one who established a new covenant. And he talked for two hours about all of the ways that Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament expectation. And then they get to this place where they're staying the night and they, they compel this man to stay with them and eat. And it says that as he broke bread with them, they all of a sudden realized who it was. And I don't know, I don't know what it was exactly that prevented them from recognizing him and there's all kinds of speculation about why. Like maybe as he broke the bread, they saw the nail prints in his wrists and realized, wait a minute, <laughs> hold on. That was Jesus we were talking to this whole time. But what happens is that they all of a sudden have the scales fall away from their eyes and they realize this person they've been talking to is Jesus, and he, he is the Messiah, just like they thought he was going to be. And they could not compute, they did not fit together for them how the exalted Davidic king, the descendant of David, who was going to rule over a kingdom, was also going to suffer and die. They didn't have that put together. It did not make sense to them. They saw him suffer and die, and they went, well, where's the kingdom? Where's the ruling and reigning happen? And they didn't realize that there was going to be a gap between the first part and the second part of those prophecies. And we live in the middle of that gap, as a matter of fact. But the reason I bring all of this up is this, is that in the middle of that gap, there's something happening. And that just like those two Emmaus-bound disciples, uh, they are prevented from recognizing Jesus for who He is. Why that is, I don't know. Uh, it's part of God's plan. But we recognize Jesus for who He is. And God is bringing many Gentiles into the kingdom of God. And He is also saving out of Israel a remnant of the Jewish people all through this entire time. But there is going to be a day when Israel is finally restored. And if you read chapter 9 through 11 of Romans, what Paul is doing is explaining all of that, helping people to understand why is it that if Jesus is the Messiah, that the overwhelming majority of Jews do not receive him as such? Why have the Jewish people not turned to Jesus as their Messiah and welcomed him and worshiped him just as we are? Why does that happen? And it's because God is doing something different with his plan. And right now, he is saving the descendants of Eric the Red and Genghis Khan and Chaka Zulu, right? Uh, he is saving people from every tribe and nation. 
and also a remnant of the Jews. But one day, that plan will be finished. And then the Jews also will be saved. So we've got a bunch of answers here. We want to look at the text, uh, beginning verse 13. Paul gives two illustrations in this chapter, about the rest of this chapter here, about explaining the relationship between us and Israel. And what he says is that in, in verses 13 and 14 is that as he goes about doing ministry, he magnifies what he's doing. In other words, whenever he's going to the synagogue, he's bragging about the privilege that he has of being apostle to the Gentiles. And he says things, I'm sure, like this. You remember where Isaiah predicts at the end of his book that people from distant lands who have not seen his, seen his glory or heard of his fame are going to come in to the kingdom of God? Well, guess what? I am the guy whom God is sending to bring those people in to be part of the kingdom that God promised to us. And you all should get on board the train too. And he is going around, and everywhere Paul went, he would announce that Jesus is the Messiah and that he has come. And he would go to the synagogue first, because the gospel, as Paul says, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, is for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. It was, we, we are the inheritors of the overflow of the blessings that God intended to give to Israel and that we also benefit from. We get the overflow of what is theirs. And so he goes about, he says, boasting in the Lord about what he is doing in fulfillment of what they as Jews have been told by the prophets to anticipate. And he goes on further to say the reason he is doing this is to make his fellow Jews jealous. Just like the scriptures predicted in Isaiah and Deuteronomy that they would be, and his purpose is not to make them mad. Right? This isn't, this isn't like when you're in high school, you know, and like, you know, the girl that you like doesn't like you, and so you date some other girl hoping to make her jealous. Right? It isn't like that. <laughs> okay? It's more, it's, it has a, he has a salvific purpose in mind. He says, and that I might save some of them at the end of chapter 14. Right? Uh, let me give you an example of this, okay? A few years back, um, we spent one summer going as a family. We went to Six Flags several times. Uh, we bought season tickets. We bought the meal plan. And we just, I think we went like eight times to Six Flags up in Chicago. We had a ball. It was so much fun. But the first time that we went... Uh, some of my kids were not as wild about roller coasters as their dad is, okay? I mean, if it goes fast and upside down, I want to be on it, right? Uh, but some of my kids were a little nonplussed by this whole experience, right? They have one up there in, in uh, Chicagoland that is called the Raging Bull. And it climbs 210 feet to the top. And then you drop from that height all the way down, you actually go under the ground, it falls so far, and you hit 72 miles an hour down the thing. Yes, it's fantastic. <laughs> okay, and I'm with one of my children, and, and they're next to me in the, in the car, and we're doing that clackety, clackety, clackety. We've waited like an hour and a half to ride this thing. Clackety, 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 we're going up. And this child, whom I love, looks at me and says, 
I hate you so much. <laughs> right? And I said, yeah, I hate you too. Let's enjoy this. You know? And so we go down this thing, and I mean, we're screaming, and it's so far of a drop that you think, oh, it's about over. But no, you've still got another 40 feet to go, right? And it is fantastic. And at the end of that ride, you know what that child did? Let's go again. <laughs> and we got back on, right? And we rode it again, right? And what I was doing was showing my children, look at how much fun dad is having. And encouraging them to participate in something they would enjoy, right? Uh, I have one child now who the only thing he wants to ride up there is the one where you sit in it and then it tilts you this way so that you ride like Superman uh, with your belly to the ground and then you do a big circle upside down. It's great. It's fabulous. Uh, it's a lot of fun, right? Um, it's a lot of fun. And, and what Paul is doing is something similar to that. He is showing his Jewish brothers and sisters how great it is to follow Jesus and how he is the fulfillment of everything they have been hoping to experience and enjoy. And this is so blessed and so wonderful. And don't you want to try it? Don't you want to try it with me? It's awesome. It's amazing. I used to be like you. I used to be an unbeliever. And in fact, I even persecuted these people who run around saying Jesus is the Messiah. But then I tried it, and it's amazing. That's what Paul is doing, because he is hoping not to take them on a roller coaster ride, but to help them to be saved eternally through faith in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? I hope so. Uh, and he says, look, uh, he says, if... Understand this, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, in other words, that's what's happening right now. They have rejected Jesus the Messiah, but nevertheless, the world is being reconciled through him. In fact, there are Jordanians and Indonesians and Zulus and Bantus and Americans and Canadians, believe it or not, and Frenchmen and these kind, you know, all kinds of people from all over the world are being reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. And he says, he says, if, if Israel's rejection means reconciliation to God from the entire world, what will it mean when Israel is included but life from the dead? What will it mean but life from the dead? In other words, the resurrection of the dead is going to happen as a result of Israel coming into the kingdom en masse. Okay? Now, let me just give you a little, a little uh, uh, last things uh, theology here real quickly. All right? What Paul is talking about is this. When a believer dies... When a believer dies, his or her spirit immediately is in the presence of Jesus. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, according to Paul. But their body is in the ground. Their, their body is in the ground. And traditionally, when, when Christians buried people, they always bury them facing east toward the rising sun because Jesus said that as lightning that flashes in the east... 
is visible in the, even in the West, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. That on the day that Jesus returns, that we will see him. And those who have died uh, believing in Jesus, their bodies will be raised from the grave. It's going to scare a bunch of people. All right? They haul these tombs. Woof! Going to open up, and there's going to be bodies coming out of the grave. You know, I keep trying to convince the people down at City Hall that if they sell a plot to a person to a person who is a believer in Jesus, that they ought to work out a rental agreement, not a sale, right? Because I'm not staying, right? Not this is not my permanent dwelling place. I'm getting out of here, right? My body is coming up out of the grave. My body will be raised. Uh, to new life, it'll be restored and resurrected and made immortal. I will, having died, never die again. And I will, my spirit will then join my body if I'm dead. My spirit will join my body and I will be alive forever with the Lord. And by the way, uh, this is a great deal. You know, as Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid of dying, but I don't want to be there when it happens. Some of us who... Um, who are whoever is alive and believing in Jesus at the return of Christ will not experience death. It'll just be you'll just be changed. It says in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you will be changed, and you will get your resurrection body and a renewed heart that doesn't sin anymore in an instant at the appearing of the sun. And Paul is saying, look, if their rejection means that we all get salvation, then their acceptance means that we get eternal life. The resurrection from the dead. Not just the, the, the ascension of our spirit into heaven, but the resurrection of the body and the dwelling on the new heavens and the new earth that God promised us the end of the book this is coming and it's coming as a result of the salvation of the jewish people in mass which is going to happen uh, when is that going to happen i think it i think the turning uh, of israel back to the messiah is going to happen in large measure during the great tribulation at the end of all things and just before the millennial kingdom will be the return of christ and the resurrection of the dead. Uh, and it will be amazing. And in between, if you die, your spirit's with Jesus. And you are freed from this world and all of its cares. And so you don't even worry about that. But we are not meant to be unclothed, but clothed with new bodies, Paul says in Romans, I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Okay? So, verse 16 might confuse you, but it was clear to anybody with a Jewish background. Uh, under the Old Testament sacrificial system, there was a special offering that was made just after Passover at the beginning of the harvest. And right after Passover at the beginning of the harvest, it was an offering called first fruits. And what you did for the offering of first fruits was you took some of the grain that you harvested and you mixed it with oil and you made cakes. You made pancakes, essentially, uh, out of it. And then you would offer those to the, uh, to the Lord at the altar. And you would say, okay, here are the first fruits, the results, the first fruits of my harvest. 
And uh, all of your harvest then was declared holy on that basis, including all of the stuff that you brought to be burned on the altar, as well as all that you gave to the priest for their ongoing uh, feeding and maintenance. Uh, And what Paul is doing is comparing the Jewish nation to that law. And he's saying, look, a small portion of them, the first fruits, has come into the church. But that small portion, the first fruits of the Jews, of which Paul would be a part, uh, is just the first fruits. It's the first taste of God's blessing. The first little bit of the harvest to come in, and there's a much greater harvest than just this remnant of Jews that is coming. And so I think when he mentions the root also, when he says, um, if the root is holy, then so are the branches, that he's talking about Abraham. He's talking about the founder of the Jewish nation. That because Abraham was declared righteous and holy before God, that those that come from him, like a tree with its branches, will also be declared holy also. Now, Uh, Look at uh, verses 17 to 24. These verses are a second extended illustration. Uh, If you grow fruit trees, uh, there is a process. If you're growing olives, um, what you have, if you have wild olives, uh, the kind that they turn into cultivated olive trees, in order to, the reason you want to domesticate one of those is that you only get on a wild olive tree just a few small olives mostly pit, very little uh, fruit, and very little oil out of that. But if through selective breeding you start, get it, you start getting bigger olives and tastier olives and more oily olives, and you start getting something that is useful. Uh, but generally speaking, and I would say generally, I mean almost 100% of the time, what you would do as you began to cultivate olives is as you got cultivated trees to grow what you would then do is you would maybe take some wild trees and you would take branches and break them off of those and take cultivated branches and graft them on to the wild tree so that then that the wild tree would produce fruit like the cultivated one right but what you would never do is the reverse. Take, 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 little, take the branches off the wild tree and uh, break them off and graft them onto the cultivated one. Why? Because what you're going to get is all those little bitty fruits that have, in fact, not all those. There's not very many of them. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do that because it's going the wrong direction. Why would you take something wild Uh, that produces in a way you don't want and replace something that produces the way you do. That doesn't make any sense. But that is, in fact, what God did with us. Who are the wild olive trees? Look around. You're it. (laughs) Okay, so am I. Right? We're the wild olive trees. You know, the people who descended from uh, Native Americans and Africans and uh, various tribes of, wi- of, uh, of wild barbarians from the North Country, right, uh, in Europe. Uh, we, we are those people. We are the wild ones. And God took His cultivated olive tree, the people of God, and He broke off some of the natural branches, people of Israel, because of their unbelief. 
And he grafted you and me onto that thing so that we would grow and that we would have life, that we would produce fruit, that we would be nourished. He did something against nature for our salvation. Now, um, Paul tells us uh, why that happened. It happened according to, uh, according to the Scripture here. Uh, they were broken off, verse 20, because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. But then he also tells us, verse 21, what our attitude should be as a result. And he says, you don't become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. You know, sometimes I think that that people think that they're their spiritual identity is something that just can be passed on automatically, right? Like, uh, I, I encounter this every now and then. Um, I love to tell people what I do and where I do it. Uh, you know, that I'm a pastor at Chillicothe Bible Church. And that I have these great people that I get to serve Christ alongside. And, and um, when I tell people that, I get one of two reactions. Either, oh, well, let me tell you about my church, right? Or, this one, you know, I had an uncle who was a Methodist once, <laughs> right? It's like, they have no idea what I am talking about whatsoever, right? But they want to kind of relate to me a little bit, I guess, and so they emphasize kind of whatever tenuous Christian connection they might think that they might have, right? But the point that I'm making and the point Paul is making is that each person has to continue in faith, right? Your Christianity ought not ever be something that you used to do, or that you used to believe in, or while I was raised in the church, and therefore, no. If, you, if your faith is not a living thing, what do, you, what do you do with dead branches? You cut them off. And Paul says, what God has done with Israel for their unbelief, He will also do to us. God is perfectly fair. Unbelief results in being broken off the tree in both cases, right? If your faith is not living, it's dead. And dead branches get cut off. And he says, look, you have to continue trusting God, believing in His Messiah, because if not, God is, will not hesitate to be just and to do to Gentiles what He has already done to Jews. So do not be puffed up, but fear. And then I want you to underline this little phrase here, verse 22. He says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. What, it, what that means is this, that God is holy in His judgment against unbelief, and He is radically kind to those who turn to Him in faith. He is severe in His judgment against those who continue in unbelief, 
but he's radically kind to those who turn to him in faith. And he is kind and he is just at the same time and often to the same people at different points in their life, right? I was, Paul says in Ephesians, he says, you were, past tense, by nature, children of wrath. In other words, by nature, we who, when we were unbelievers, we were under the severity of God's judgment. And is God's judgment serious? Yes, it is. I would say that uh, if you're looking for serious judgment, eternity in hell ranks at the top of the list. It is serious. God's wrath is poured out on you for eternity. But God has also been radically kind to us in that He offers us salvation through faith in His Son on whom the wrath of God has already been poured out on the cross. And He says, note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in His kindness. In other words, again, your faith cannot be something that you used to do. Right? Um, And let me just be really clear about that. It's not that you lose your salvation. You do not lose your salvation. If your salvation is authentically possessed, it cannot be lost. But he is speaking here to people who might be tempted to wander away from the faith thinking nothing will happen. I'm just going to go off and do this thing over here and it'll be okay. And I have known all kinds of people who grew up in the church who if you ask them, what must a person do to be saved would be able to tell you, believe in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. And you ask them, well, do you believe that? They will say, well, I used to. And what the Scripture would say to you is this, that a person who, quote, used to possess faith didn't. That their faith is not that they lost it, it's that they never had it to begin with. And so he is encouraging people to check and make sure that you authentically know Jesus, that your faith is real, that you will not, that you will not be like those that Jesus talks about who said, you know, Oh, he said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did you not in our presence do these things? And did we not in your name even cast out demons? And he says, and I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of wickedness. I never knew you. Right? And you've got to be careful here that your faith is real. And if it's not real, take the opportunity to trust Christ in a genuine way right now. Amen? 
Today is the day of salvation. And, and the scripture says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in rebellion. But today is the day. Uh, and verse 23, Paul says, 23-24 here, he says that there is a day coming. He says, even if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in. And if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Uh, C.S. Lewis said this one time. He said, in a sense, the converted Jew is the only normal human being in the world. Everyone else is, from one point of view, a special case dealt with under emergency circumstances. <laughs> right? Uh, that's exactly right. Right now, what God is doing is bringing salvation to a whole bunch of us special cases under emergency circumstances. But one day, Israel's restoration is going to proceed full steam. Well, when is that? Well, he tells us here. Uh, beginning verse 25, he says, uh, he says, let me tell you a mystery. Now that word, Paul uses it several times uh, in the New Testament, and what it means is uh, not something that is hard to understand, like a mystery novel, you know, where you're waiting to see who, the, who done it, right? But a mystery is something which you could not figure out on your own apart from God's revelation. He says, let me lay God's revelation here on you. Something that I have received direct from God as truth, as an apostle. And the mystery is twofold. First, that Israel has been partially hardened in her unbelief so that only a remnant of them is being saved at the moment in contrast to these great numbers of Gentiles that you see all around you. And that's what you see. You see people of every tribe and nation and tongue and people group that are coming into the kingdom of God, but only a remnant and a minority of them are Jews. So that's the first part of the mystery, that that is happening. But second of all, the second part is that that situation is not permanent. Look at the text. It says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Uh, I think that's, what, that's a reference to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. He said that the gospel will be preached into all the people groups, and then the end will come. So by the way, anybody want to be a missionary to an unreached people group? Because when they're all reached, then Jesus is coming. Uh, I got to tell you, you know, there was all these predictions that yesterday was going to be the day Jesus was coming back. I, I, I wasn't convinced that was true, but I was sincerely hoping that it was. <laughs> right? Um, I'm like, Lord, I don't know if you're coming back today or not, but if you are, it's fine with me. <laughs> I'm good with it. <laughs> okay. In fact, I say that on a lot of days, right? Lord, if today is the day, if you could tell that archangel to blow that horn already, uh, let's get to it. You know, I'm ready to be done with, uh, with this, right? 
But he says that uh, until when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, um, which I think is at the end of all, th- all things, then when that happens, he says, look at your Bible, all Israel will be saved. Now, um, I don't know specifically what that means. Uh, when it says all Israel will be saved. He, he bases that promise, though, on uh, a couple of quotations from the book of Isaiah. Okay? He quotes first Isaiah chapter 59, verses 20 to 21, and he also adds in a line from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 7. Now, I'll tell you what I think it means when he says all Israel will be saved. I think what it, what it means at a minimum is that the great majority of Jews who are alive at, that t- at, the, at the return of Jesus will be saved and grafted back into the people of God with us. Now, it might mean much more than that. And people debate back and forth. But it could mean that every single Jew who is alive at the time of Jesus' return will be saved. And some commentators think, well, no, it means much more than that. When it says all Israel, it means every single last one who has ever lived will somehow be saved. Now, I'm not prepared to go that direction because God saves on the basis of grace, but it is through faith. Um... I'm not sure it's possible to be confident either way, but at a minimum, the great majority of Jews alive at the return of Christ will be saved through faith in Him. They will recognize Him as Messiah. And it won't, what we know for sure is it will not be simply a remnant of them as it is now. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't call it a mystery. That's what we can see. We can already see that. But it's not going to be just a remnant. And he explains that a little further in 28 to 32. Uh, He says, right now, the the Jews are enemies of God for our sake. And right now, most of them are cut off from God and his salvation. But nevertheless, they remain his chosen people. He loves even those who are not part of the remnant that are being saved because of his love for their forefathers. Uh, why is that? Well, look at this scripture again. It says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, God does not take away from people a covenant that he has established even when it is made with people who should be enjoying its blessing, but instead are living in rebellion against him. And according to Paul, this is just another example of God's justice. That once we were disobedient and now we get mercy uh, because of their disobedience. And in the same way, they're being disobedient right now. But by the same mercy we received, they also will get mercy and receive salvation. In other words, God has the same standards for everybody. You who were formerly disobedient are now receiving mercy. They who were formerly obedient and now are disobedient will one day not be disobedient, but obedient, and they will get mercy. And he concludes, verse 32, by saying that God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on them all. And what I think 
Paul is saying there is that God is demonstrating his justice. And some people might say that, look, it's not fair for God to choose the Jews and not the Gentiles and, it, and to have that situation just persist all the way down through history. And so God has mostly allowed uh, even Israel to be hardened to him that he might be merciful to the Gentiles for a while too until the day when he ensures that Israel is saved in more than just a small remnant portion. And the reason I, I emphasize this is this, okay? I think the primary question being uh, answered by all of human history is this. Is God really fair? Is God fair to condemn people to hell for unbelief and to welcome them into His presence by grace through faith? Uh, and God has worked with humanity in a variety of different ways down through human history. And you see that as you read your Bible, right? Uh, first, people, you know, at the Day of Judgment, people might say, well, you know, if only you had made us perfect and put us in perfect environment and in close daily fellowship with you, well, then we would not have fallen into sin and rebellion and would not deserve punishment, right? You know what God will say? Yeah, it did that. Guess what? It didn't work. Well, if only you had given us a conscience to obey your commands and a means of relating to you through sacrifice, um, and God will say, well, you know what? I tried that also. Uh, all the days between the fall and the, the days of Abraham, we tried that. And then, well, if only you had had created a special people to uh, be an example to the rest of us that we might learn how, uh, how you really are and how you want to be related with. Well, guess what? I did that. I created the Jews to be that people. Well, if only you'd written everything down that you really need us to, to know and understand and obey about you so that we could be in relationship with you. And God will say, yeah, I did that. Well, you know, you really don't understand what it's like, God, because you've never been one of us and you don't understand what kind of stuff we go through and how tempting sin really is. And he will say, oh, really? Lived among you as one of you for 33 years. Was tempted in every way with sin that you are. And in fact, got betrayed by one of my friends crucified naked and hung between earth and sky for six hours with God's wrath poured out on me so that it wouldn't be poured out on you. How about that? Well, you know, if only you would come down and reign on earth where we could see you and, and actually see you in person and know in your glory all that you have done. Well, guess what? God's going to do that too the millennial kingdom. And at the end of everything, humanity will be without excuse. But he has, says that he has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on everybody who will come to him in faith, both Jews and Gentiles. If you will come to him in faith, you can receive salvation. So, a couple things. There's a lot we can pull out of this passage. It's pretty dense. But 
couple things here. Consider the kindness and the severity of God. God's kindness is virtually unlimited. He welcomes all kinds of people to repent and to trust in Christ and to by His grace find their sins forgiven and themselves made new in relationship with Him. Amen? God's kindness is unlimited in that way. But if they reject Him, God's judgment is as severe as His mercy is vast. And hell is real and real people really do go there. I want all of us, in fact, more than just as in this room, to experience mercy instead of judgment. Amen? I uh, looked at our, our 2018 by 2018 chart uh, a week or so ago. We have shared the gospel as a church with 1,398 people over the last four years. Now, we've got a few more months this year into the end of 2018, 700 and some more people to reach with the gospel. We can do it. When we consider the kindness and the severity of God, because the door of His mercy is not open forever. And we want to be sure that we can get as many people through the door as we can, right? Because we understand God's unlimited mercy, but also the severity of His judgment. Number two, rejoice that God's calling and His gifts are irrevocable. God's calling and His gifts are irrevocable. You know, I talked about this some last week, but it bears repeating again. God's calling and His gifts are irrevocable. God made promises to Israel, and they are still being kept even in the midst of large-scale rebellion against Him and rejection of Jesus as Messiah. And that fact gives me enormous encouragement and enormous security knowing that I can trust God to keep His promises to me too even when I mess up as I do. And despite whatever circumstances come my way, Whatever happens, whatever happens, God's calling and His gifts are irrevocable. And guess what? Guess what Paul said we were? He said we were called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Right? And so when it says that God's calling and His gifts are irrevocable, guess what that means? His calling to you is irrevocable as well. Because you didn't have to behave to get your salvation. You don't have to straighten up and fly right to maintain your salvation. Although you should. Right? Out of, out of rejoicing and glorying in the grace of God, you ought to obey Him. Right? But His gifts and His calling are irrevocable. They were not given to you based on your goodness, but based on His, on His goodness. And the fact that you were in great need, and He is a great God. And the same God who keeps His promises even to this day, to Israel, is keeping them to us too. And so we ought to rejoice in that fact. That the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
But the last thing is that an understanding of how great God's grace has been to us ought to bring, first of all, humility, but also great worship. Also great worship. We did not save ourselves. Amen? Amen. God saved us by His grace, and He grafted us in. We were all wild shoots, just growing wherever we felt like. And God took us and placed us into the tree of His salvation. And that means we should be humbly grateful for our salvation, and that should lead us to joyful, joyful worship as we proclaim the greatness of His grace, that God would take wild shoots like you and me and plant them in His garden. So let's pray, and then we'll sing. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your marvelous mercy. We thank You that You are a just God who punishes sin and wickedness, but also an unbelievably radically kind God who welcomes all who will turn to Him in faith. Father, may there not be anyone here who persists in rebellion and unbelief. But may they, by your Holy Spirit, experience re regeneration, redemption, adoption, and new life through faith in Christ. And Father, may those of us who have, have, it, who have it already rejoice in humble adoration that you, the great God of all things, would save us. Father, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.